We're delighted this morning to have uh, William Adams uh, come share grace along the journey. Uh, I call him Doc because he's one of my docs. He takes care of me. And uh, uh, he's the only doctor I have that, that sometimes hugs me, which I appreciate. And uh, uh, William went through uh, a health event, I would say, uh, in the last year, and, and uh, he uh, graciously accepted the invitation uh, to share a little bit uh, of that with us and just how he experienced grace along the journey. I need to mention Beverly, and did I see Neil, or am I making that up? Neil's here. Is Julia here? Julia's here, and yes, her. His lo- no, I know Neil. Heather, that's right, Sanford grad, right, okay. It's the professor's side of me, just, just, for, just uh, ignore that. Uh, but glad all of you guys are here, all of them, and I'm assuming Heather has, has an amazing taste in music as all the Adamses do because I've bumped into them at concerts and things. So anyway, William, will you come up and share a little bit with us and uh, we joyfully hear from you. And while he's making his way up, let's welcome William. Good morning. morning. This past summer, my family and I got the chance to go to the Grand Canyon for the first time. That's something I'd always wanted to do. When you first look out and see the Grand Canyon, it's truly spectacular. It's a mile from the Colorado River below to the top of the canyon. At the widest point, the Grand Canyon is 18 miles wide. But if you see it every day, after a time it becomes ordinary. The limitations of the human mind do not make it easy to appreciate the spectacular things we see every day. But we do live in a spectacular universe. We should be thankful for God's creation and that we're able to experience it. Well, a few weeks after we got home from our trip to the Grand Canyon, I developed a serious illness and found myself in an ICU at UAB. The physicians told me the odds were not in my favor. What sustained me during this time was my faith in God and in Jesus Christ, his son. When I'm facing a crisis, that's when I realize God is in control. When we're busy with everyday life, it's not easy to realize God is in control. God has a plan for each and every one of us. Jim Barnett reminded me, whatever happened, God will provide. I prayed that God's will be done, whatever his will might be, and after a time I began to get better. My physicians told me I I should hopefully improve. It was God's will that I survived this illness. I know God has a plan for me as he has a plan for everyone. We don't know God's plan for us. Our plans are not necessarily God's plans. Sometimes certain events don't make sense to people, but they make sense to God because God can see clearly. Don't take your life or health for granted. Don't take your family or friends for granted. Don't look at the Grand Canyon and consider it ordinary. Treat others with love because that's what you want them to do for you. It's the only way human beings can be happy. And it's a commandment of God. Well, I can tell you that love and patience is what I received from my family, 
my friends, the members of Brooklyn Baptist Church, and my coworkers. And what an enormous benefit it was for me. It was beyond any description I can give. I want to say thank you to God and thank you to all of you. But I'm not only grateful for what you've done for me, I'm even more grateful for the type of people you are. Every day you show love to all of those whose lives you influence. Loving others is second only to loving God. You're carrying out God's will when you show love for others. I pray that God blesses all of you and also blesses me in this life and with treasures in heaven. When my illness was at its worst, I, could, I barely had the strength to move. Recovering from this, I was reminded about patience. My sight is not what it was before my illness, but I can overcome this now, and life goes on. I'm back at work, essentially doing the same job I did before. However, I have much more joy now as compared to before my illness because I can better appreciate how much God has blessed me. And so lastly, I want to read to you the Psalm 23 out of the New Living Translation. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even though, when, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely, your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you. Our scripture this morning is from Luke, chapter 15, verses 25 through 32. You can read along in your bulletin. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is the final in a three-part series entitled Finding Our Way Home. And each Sunday, obviously, we've had different titles for the sermons, but also for this best known of parables. We have imposed the term of a prodigal son, but you can really title it other things. And it's easy, especially to do that when you divide up 
the story. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about leaving home, which is really about uh, the parable of the homeless son, we could say. Last week was coming home, and we talked about it in terms of the parable of the prodigal father, because prodigal means excessive and extravagant, seemingly wasteful, but it's the excessive love that this father has for the wayward son who has now come home. And this morning, we're going to talk about here but not home, (laughs) here but not home, and you could call it the parable of the other prodigal son. He's wasteful in a different way. Now, I want to begin with a very brief news clip, and this was basically about someone asking for forgiveness because of a relationship. It was a breakup, and and wrote this long letter asking for forgiveness, and granted it was in an academic setting and all, but the response of the person uh, who was supposed to forgive the person, well, let's just watch it. So we all go through breakups, right? Ups and downs, it happens, but this one definitely makes the grade. Or does it? You decide. A University of Central Florida student's reaction to his ex-girlfriend's plea for forgiveness is making the rounds. The student received a handwritten letter from his ex who apologized for the mistakes that she made during their relationship. Well, there it is right here. He marked up her apology letter and then gave it a D-. minus. At least she passed. You think that's funny? (laughs) He said at the end, at least she passed. You know, here's someone genuinely seeking forgiveness, and then he showers red ink all over it. Uh, Sometimes you and I do the same thing, though. We want to grade other people based on their sinfulness and their waywardness and their weaknesses and their failures. We want to grade them instead of grace them, if you will. Uh, The elder brother certainly wanted to do that. He wanted to grade his younger brother, who's now returned, instead of gracing him. He did not realize it was now time to celebrate, to celebrate the return of his younger brother. And so we could call him the other prodigal son. You know, one ran away from home. The other stayed at home, but was as far apart from the father as the one who went geographically to a faraway place. The elder brother was home, but not home. He was here, but not home. And you can argue that the story, really when you analyze it, it's, it's every bit as much, and maybe even more, an indictment on our being the elder brother in terms of how we can judge other people. What's going on right, right before Jesus launches into these three parables about lost and found, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son? What precipitates his sharing these stories? Well, let's look back at it at, at verses 1 and 2. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Yeah, he's gracing them, not grading them. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law really are like the elder brother at the end of these three parables. And we can be like that as well. And when we do that, we're here, but we're really not home as as church. You can feel at home at church and not really be home. The second prodigal son reminds us that distance from God is not geographic, not necessarily. You can be right here and distant from God. You know, the center of gravity for all three of these parables is what? At the end, each time when someone is found, what happens? They celebrate. 
They have a party. That's really the gospel in a nutshell, lost, found, party. That's really what it is. But sometimes we want to judge. Sometimes even if we'll eventually welcome them, we'd rather kind of put them on probation for a time, issue forth some type of mandatory sentence upon them, at least for a time. Or maybe we just don't want them to come home. It's like Jonah and the Ninevites in the Old Testament. You remember, he was upset that the Ninevites were actually repenting and returning home to God. He didn't like it. He didn't think they deserved it. Well, did he? So what does it take for us to really be home here in the right way? In other words, really to be God's church. Well, first of all, to really be home in Christ's church, we must get over our resentment that God loves everybody the same. And he does. He loves each and every one of us as if we were the only one in the world to love. But we can resent that sometimes. Look at verses 25 through the beginning of 28. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was what? Angry and would not go in. He's angry. It reminds me, by the way, of the Sunday school teacher who was teaching some kids about uh, this parable. And, and obviously they knew about the prodigal son returning home and the celebration. Probably didn't know it beyond that. Sometimes we forget the elder brother, unfortunately. But, but she was wanting to make sure they understood that. So she said, and they had a big party when he got home. But who was upset that they had the big party? And they were all like, and they didn't know. They didn't know about the elder brother. She said, come on, come on. Who was upset that they had the big party? And finally one kid said, the fatted calf. And she said, well, yeah. <laughs> Probably so. But so was the elder brother. And sometimes it bothers us that God showers people with grace whom we think deserve it less. True story, Fred Craddock, one of the great preachers of the last generation, preached on this parable in a a small town in Georgia. And after the service, a man came up to him and said, you know, I really didn't like that very much. And Fred was like, well, I'm I'm sorry. What did you not like about it? He said, well, it wasn't your sermon. I just, I don't like that story. He said, well, why not? And he said, well, it's not morally responsible. And Fred said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, forgiving that boy. He said, well, what what do you think should have happened? He said, I think when he got home, he should have been arrested. And Fred honestly thought for a minute, well, he's going to tell a joke, right? But they talked a little bit more, and he could tell this guy was serious. And finally, Fred said, well, what would you have given this prodigal son? And this fellow thought for a second. He said, six years. I mean, what? Where does that come from? When did God die and make any of us the moral police You know, make us the quality control authorities. When did God die and do that? That's not only pharisaical, it's really ungrateful for the grace that God has given us in our waywardness. You know, for some of us, it really does have to do with playing at church. We come here and, you know, play the church culture game, but we're really not imparting grace to other people. Or it may be we're slaving at church. Does that make sense? We might be slaving at it through a sort of legalism. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've what? Slaved for you. And never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time you never gave me even one goat to feast with my friends. Not with family, note the distance, but not even one goat. 
He's been slaving all this time. You know, been playing the church game, but not really uh, immersing himself in it and offering grace as God expects us to. It doesn't like the fact that God loves everybody the same. It's like that other parable that Jesus told, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Do you remember that? There were laborers who started at 6 a.m., some at 10, some at noon, some at 3, some at 6, who only worked for one hour, and then they're lined up to be paid. And everybody gets paid the what? Same. Everybody gets Very good. Everybody gets paid the same. And some folks are resentful of that. Some people don't deserve it as much, at least in their minds. It really amounts to what Philip Yancey referred to as the scandalous mathematics of grace. But we've got to get over the fact that God loves all folks the same. We've got to celebrate that. But secondly, to really be at home in Christ's church, we also must get over comparing our sins to those of others. Look at verse 30. All these years I've slaved for you, Yet when this son of yours, he doesn't even claim family, this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Sometimes we want to measure the sins of others against our own. Well, at least I'm not that bad, and therefore I have some kind of right to look down upon them in some patronizing way. You know, It's like it gives us the right to measure out and parcel grace to others, as if we have that right. Again, it's just like the Pharisees and the teacher of the law. That's exactly what they were doing. They were criticizing Jesus for joyfully and willingly hanging out with all these low-life sinners. People who had fallen, just like you, by the way. I always remember uh, Dr. Frederick Sampson, this wonderful uh, black preacher from Detroit. I remember hearing him saying, if you know about someone who has fallen, help him up. He had to be walking. Very simple, but I love that. He had to be walking. It reminds me also, I don't know if any of y'all have heard of this play or read this play, seen this play called A Raisin in the Sun. It's a story about the Youngers. It's an African-American family on the south side of Chicago in the 1950s. They're poor, but one day they receive a $10,000 check in the mail, and it's basically from the life insurance policy of the patriarch, the father who has died. And the matriarch of the family named Mama wants to invest in a home. Their dream was always to have a home, and to fulfill that dream, she wanted to use that $10,000 to invest in a home. But Mama's son, Walter Lee, argues against that, and he wants to take the $10,000 and invest in a liquor store close by, and, and he really believes that, that investing in that and running that liquor store will help alleviate all of their poverty concerns, all of their financial struggles that they've had. And so... Uh, Mama gives the money to Walter Lee, and make a long story short, one of his business partners, and I guess you could say former friends, skips town with the money, and they don't have it anymore. And the rest of the family is enraged, and there's a daughter named Benitha, and and Benitha is talking to Mama and says, how could he be so stupid? And Mama says, love him, child. And Benita says, love him, there is nothing left to love. And then Mama says this, there's always something left to love, child. And if you ain't learned that, you ain't learned nothing. Have you cried for that boy today? I don't mean for yourself and for the family because we lost the money. I mean for him, what he'd been through and what it done to him. Child, when do you think is the time to love somebody the most? When they done good and made things easy for everybody? 
Well, then you ain't learned anything. You ain't through learning because that ain't the time at all. It's when he's at his lowest and can't believe in himself because the world has done whipped him so. And she ends it with this. When you start, when you start measuring somebody, measure him right, child. Measure him right. Make sure you've done taking into account what hills and valleys he come through before he got to wherever he is. You know, we're, we're, we're tempted to measure out people's sins against our own and judge people accordingly. But when you want to do that, listen to Mama. She says, when you start measuring somebody, measure him right, because we are all equally wounded, broken sinners in need of Jesus. Don't measure, don't compare. And then determine how to parcel out grace to people. Shower them with grace from the beginning. But finally, to really be at home in Christ's church, we must also get over alienating ourselves from those people. Those people. It's easier to create distance from ourselves and people we don't like, people we want to judge. It makes our life easier, for one thing. And it's easier for us to create an enemy, by the way, isn't it? Because it helps us define ourselves and feel more in control. And if we just create an enemy out there, we don't have to go sit down and converse with them and minister to them and offer God's grace to them. Life is easier then. That's not what Jesus wants, though. But even in the church, we can do this, and we fail to do this. I think I shared a long time ago about when I was a youth intern one summer in northwest Alabama, there was a gentleman in the church who had done something wrong, and I didn't think it was, well... It, it, it wasn't terribly wrong in a way that just devastated a whole lot of people, but they just it was an embarrassing thing. And I heard more than once people saying, well, God forgave him, we sure don't have to. Really? Okay. Uh, okay, so this church thing is, is, is mythic. Okay. Um, and we're called to reach out to those people. Many of you know who Bill Hull was, a longtime provost at uh, Samford, Brilliant gentleman, was also theologian in residence at, at our mother church, Mountain Brook Baptist Church. Uh, a few Wednesdays ago, I was not here, I was there to introduce the speaker for the Holly Hull Lectures, and I, and I saw somebody who I had known years ago when I was interim pastor at Southside Baptist Church, a guy named Jesse Bates. Jesse has taught drama, I think, at Alabama School of Fine Arts for, for decades. Just a wonderful guy, and he came up and hugged me. I hadn't seen him in years, and it was so good to see him, and it reminded me not just of Jesse, but of uh, Johnny. Uh, Johnny was a guy, now I'm, I'm, was, I'm interim pastor at Southside, you have a lot of homeless people come in. It was a fascinating church because you had well-to-do people and folks off the street, and it was a really a beautiful mix of people. There was a guy named Johnny, real little guy who would come stumbling in. I remember, you know, it could be any time in the worship service, and he would start coming down the aisle, and he would just be wandering. Now, it was like he, he was in a in a, in a boat that was getting buffeted by waves, you know, and he's just stumbling down, obviously inebriated. If it wasn't alcohol, it was, he would look for Listerine because of its alcohol content. He would drink Listerine. It was that tragic. But he would come up toward me, and whenever he did get to me, he would say the same thing. He'd say, young man, I need $5 to get to my house in Mountain Brook. Like, okay, Johnny, you know, let's, uh, let's take care of you here. But usually it was Jesse Bates or a guy named Steve Sexton who would intercept him, and say, Johnny, let's go get some coffee. Come on out. Let's go out in the hall here. And eventually, there was a wonderful Sunday school class there called the Grace Class, aptly so. And, and they just kind of took Johnny in, and he would come in uh, then, not so much inebriated in uh, the worship service, but in Sunday school beforehand, because he knew he could go into this uh, classroom, and people would love on him and give him coffee and try to sober him up. 
And uh, I'll never forget one Sunday, though. He came stumbling in. This was right at the close of worship. And he came in from back there, and there was a woman who was visiting the church, and she was from a well-to-do place, city outside of Birmingham, and had some relatives, actually, who were here <laughs> from here in Mountain Brook. And she was standing in the aisle. I remember she had a, a, a fur stole. Just, this was, you know, dolled up, just, just great. And, uh, and here comes Johnny in the clothes he usually wears, and, and just here he is. And he comes up, and, and we were just at a point, at that point, where we just, he was like, oh, it's Johnny, you know, the guy that's always stumbling around, and, you know, we're like, oh, hey, Johnny, how you doing? This is Miss So-and-so, and, you know, and, and she, you know, she really did try to, she said, oh, nice to meet you. It was one of those marvelously awkward moments, you know, <laughs> like, oh, here we are, and clash of cultures and everything, and um, uh, I remember, to her credit, she was like uh, trying to make conversation at that moment, we were all standing around, and she said, oh, this is such a lovely sanctuary. It's just beautiful. I love the organ up there, the beautiful stained glass, the, the sky blue carpet. And it was another kind of awkward moment. She, she looked at Johnny and said, isn't this sanctuary beautiful, Johnny? And for whatever reason, in the, I don't know if it was dr his drunken haze or he had a moment of re revelation, but he, he just wheeled around like this and said, beautiful. He said, you're beautiful. And then he said, you're my sanctuary. I thought that was beautiful. <laughs> You're my sanctuary. And I don't know how much of that he was aware of, but just for him to say, You're my sanctuary. Now, a few years later, I remember I got a call from um, uh, Tim Kelly, who's still the associate pastor down there, been there forever, just a wonderful man committed uh, to that church. And uh, he called me and told me about Johnny, because I asked him, I said, I haven't seen Johnny in years. What's going on? He said, Well, a few years ago, he got clean. And um, he wound up joining the grace class for two years. He said it was amazing. He got all cleaned up, got a job. Uh, he was wonderful in the Sunday school class. He would tell people there how to minister to people like him who are out on the street most of the time and who are addictive personalities, and he was so great. And he said, but Jim, eventually he fell off the wagon, and just a few months ago he died of alcohol poisoning out on the street. And I thought that was tragic, but I thought, you know, but for a time, for a time, Johnny wasn't just one of those people. He was a child of God. He was a Christ follower who was loved by other Christ followers who had welcomed him home without judgment again and again. So let's remember that being at home in Christ's church means celebrating whenever, wherever, and to whomever grace is granted or received. Can I say it again? Being at home in Christ's church means celebrating whenever, wherever, and to whomever grace is granted and received. Look at how this parable ends. Let's look at verses 31-32. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed with me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but he is now found. End of parable. You don't know how it ends. Jesus sometimes did that with parables. You don't know if he goes in and joins the party. But let me point out one other thing. You see where he says we had to celebrate. The verb there for had to, it can mean have to or must. It's used only one other place in all the Bible. And it's another passage in Luke 9.22 when Jesus describing himself, said the Son of Man must, has to suffer many terrible things. He'll be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. He must suffer 
many things. And because of that alone, we must celebrate for those who are transformed by that most incredible transforming act on the cross. Will we go in and celebrate at the party for any prodigal? Any prodigal? Will we celebrate for any prodigal? I hope in a few minutes when uh, you go out to the vestibule, you will sign those uh, letters of support for our synagogues just down the street, Knesset Israel and Chabad of, of Alabama. I hope you will do that. And I was going to close this sermon, to be honest, with, with a nice kind of neat close, but I've got to close it this morning with a tough close. Um, I'm going to show you a brief video, uh, and, it, and it's someone interviewing the Jewish doctor who treated and then visited Robert Bowers, the man who gunned down 11 people in that synagogue, Tree of Life synagogue, and he wounded two others and wounded four police officers. And this was the head of this hospital who is Jewish himself, a member of that synagogue, and it's just a brief interview, but I want you to watch it and watch the grace. Yesterday, I went up to meet him, and I was just curious as to who is this guy? And quite honestly, he's just a guy. And he's, people say he's evil, he's this. He's some mother's son. And how did he get from that to where he is today? That's going to be a large debate that we have to wrestle with as a society. Effectively, you were sort of at the head of a team that saved his life. It may be a bit of an overstatement, but yes, it's, you know, he was severely injured and he got great care here. Uh, many of the people that attended him were Jewish, and, mm -hmm. you know, they're heroes. They, they, they did like the cops did. They did their job. They went and they, they confronted the problem and they were true to their core beliefs, and I'm very proud of them. And as a doctor, but also as a parishioner of the synagogue, and you looked into his eyes, what did you see? I just looked at him and... He's like a lot of people that come in here that they're scared, they're confused, they don't quite understand it. But once again, my job isn't to judge him. Other people give that, that's a pretty awesome responsibility. My job is to take care of him. Could you be that grace-giving that soon? Put yourself in his shoes could you be that grace-giving that soon? Take a, a hypothetical step further. What, what if at some point this gunman uh, became a Christ follower? Would you go into the party and celebrate? Lord, forgive us when we would prefer to parcel out grace toward others whom we revel in judging. Forgive us when sometimes we just want to not have anything to do with people. And yet, it's your son who was willing, and joyfully so, to be with the lowlifes, to be with the people who have, whose sin is more public often, whose sin can be more evident, but if we could make our own evident, is there a massive difference? Forgive us when we measure out our grace to others. Help us to be a bastion of grace, your grace, which is 
always greater than our sin. Thank you that your goodness is so much bigger than our badness. Thank you that wherever sin abounds, especially in our own lives, your grace abounds all the more. But help us to take that next step and impart that grace on others who desperately need it, whether they know it or not. Make us a people of grace, O God. We pray these things in your name. Amen.